Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Meaning controls understanding and shapes behavior. When a parent names a child, wittingly or unwittingly, they assign a meaning to their child. In this sense, the modern practice of choosing a meaningless name that sounds nice should give one pause. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Father controls our understanding of the role of Jesus by controlling when and how Jesus is named Son of God. As a result, we are left with the notion of King and Messiah that dismantles everything we think we understand about divine power. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 326 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've been talking about the interesting interplay between the phrase Ben Adam as it's applied to Jesus and Matthew and the title Son of God. In fact, Ben Adam becomes a title in Matthew when it's applied to Jesus. And Rich, you made a comment this morning that Jesus is only referred to as the Son of God when the Father speaks, whether he speaks through Peter by putting his instruction in him or whether he speaks himself. Peter was the one who said that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus immediately ascribed what Peter said to the Father. You can't say that unless my Father teaches you that. Interestingly, Jesus isn't the one who convinces you that he's the Son of God. Only God convinces you that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in this upcoming scene of the Transfiguration, we get God himself to weigh in on the issue of the title of the Son of God and how it works. The introduction of the title Ben-Adam as a title of Jesus in Matthew is given to subvert our human understanding of the title Son of God. I want to keep stressing this point. Scripture works this way all the time. Scripture will co-opt kingly imagery, as it does, for example, in the Psalter or in the Prophets, and then subvert it to the agenda of the text, which is, in the Psalms, nonviolence. In the prophets, judgment against God's own people, his own city, for their disobedience. However, it's not kingly in the way that all of the other gods of the earth are kingly. Remember, in Matthew, Jesus is the shepherd king. He is undoing that transition. David should have been content as a shepherd. When he was a lowly shepherd boy, 
the Lord overcame Goliath for his sake. So when you think of that example from the Old Testament of God winning victory on behalf of the shepherd David, here in Matthew, it is God winning victory on behalf of the shepherd Jesus, on behalf of the Ben-Adam Jesus. So this is how Jesus will function as the Son of God with all deference to the authority of his Father. It's different than the way Caesar is a king. It's different than the way the rulers of Israel and Judah were kings in the Old Testament. There is a corrective taking place in Matthew. Yes, who gets to declare who the Son of God is? If you're looking at a coin and it has the name of the Caesar, Theuios, the Son of God, some guy who made a coin declared it. Okay, why are they a reference for you? Because they get to make the coins and they belong to the court and they have a relationship with the Caesar and all the paraphernalia that goes along with that. But Jesus rejects any kind of reference other than the will of his Father. Only the will of the Father declares Jesus to be his Son. And Paul is talking about adoption and how you become a son through adoption. You become a child through adoption. But that only comes through God's declaration. I can't tell you, Father, that you're a son of God. But if God says that you're his son by adoption, that's his business. Only the Father gets to declare who his sons are. Now, if Peter happens to say it, Jesus has to say immediately, this is not you, Peter. It can't be you, because if it's you, then, Peter, you are a reference point. And God forbid that Peter would be a reference point. Every time we have this discussion, Richard, about the role of Caesar as the son of God, the son of the gods, the god of Rome himself. I can't help but think of the work of Cyril Robinson, the English historian who, in his classic work about the history of Rome, paints a picture of the scene when Caesar declared himself God. He made a bust of himself and paraded through the city Later, as we progress in this passage, we'll note that Jesus continues to be concerned about the news of his victory getting out before it is made clear to everyone that he's not a son of God in the same way that Caesar is the ruler of Rome and that his victory in the resurrection is not a victory like Caesar's march into Rome when he took over the Senate. It's important what you're saying about Jesus not declaring himself anything. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Six days later, one sentence later for us, the reader, so it is firm in our mind what Jesus just said. But it's probably long enough for Peter, James, and John to forget everything that Jesus has taught almost a week ago. As readers, we can't help but connect the two. When this transfiguration happens, this metamorphosis, they see Jesus as light. Torah is often depicted as light. It's the light that shows you the way. It's the way that you're supposed to walk. God shows the light 
so that you can walk clearly and not stumble. Light is connected with wisdom and knowledge. And Torah, Jesus is becoming this light because he is reflecting the will of the Father. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. I always think of the example that our professor at seminary used to give. He was doing his own doctoral dissertation on the Gospel of Matthew, and he talked about archaeological digs where they found examples of the mezuzah, which is literally the doorpost in Jewish tradition where you put the scroll of the Torah. When you enter into a home, when you leave a home, you venerate the Torah as a reminder of the admonition that you should be studying God's teaching when you enter, when you leave, when you sit down, when you stand up, when you walk along the way. And in some cases, they found examples of the mezuzah that had a depiction of Moses and Elijah flanking either side of the scroll of the Torah, which provides interesting historical context for this verse. The word that the Father put into Peter to speak the word that Jesus is commissioned to bring to all the nations, the word by which he rules, the word that he carries, is also the word that he embodies in the story. As Jesus is shining brightly like the sun, they're discussing scripture, and so Moses and Elijah represent Torah and the prophets. Jesus is bringing both together. It makes sense that the three of them would be discussing scripture and understanding scripture it almost reminds me of the passage in Luke where Jesus goes to the temple and is discussing with the teachers. They sit and they study Torah together. They sit and they study God's word together. This appearance of all three together puts Jesus in communion with others who bring the scripture to the people. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Please, Peter, don't do that. The whole movement of Scripture is for the scroll to come down from the Mount of Sinai and out into the wilderness. The whole movement of the New Testament is for the scroll to escape the tabernacle in the temple in Jerusalem and to go out into the nations. Why now are you trying to lock up Jesus and Elijah and Moses on the mountain? Why? In chapter 16, all the people are saying that the Son of Man is the prophets and Elijah and John the Baptist. And so by putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all into the same category, Peter is saying, oh, look, all these Son of Men came at the same time. This is awesome forgetting that he himself was the one who declared Jesus unique among the sons of men, like John the Baptist and Moses and Elijah, but now he's including them each in their own tent. Did Peter forget that Jesus is different? Because if he did, maybe he needs a reminder. The other interesting thing about this metaphor of these three characters, Richard, is that it's a kind of canonization of the entire biblical tradition because you have the law and the prophets now unified and complete with the scroll of Jesus. Now you have the complete tradition 
complete not in the sense that Jesus adds something new, complete in the sense that because Jesus now brings the canon to its completion, you can, in fact, fulfill the function of the Messiah to bring all the nations into the fold so that the teaching of the Father, carried by Moses, carried by Elijah, and now fulfilled by Jesus, can have dominion upon all the earth over all the nations. Which makes the next verse practically self-evident. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Interestingly, the voice from the heavens, the voice of the Father, cuts Peter off while they were still speaking. He talks over Peter and announces that this son of man, this Ben Adam, is my son. I am pleased with him. Listen to what he says. Stop talking, Peter. I told you what to say. Why are you talking about building tabernacles? Peter would so much like to be in cahoots with Jesus, and the Father reminds Peter that Jesus and his Father are in cahoots, and Peter is not part of that. This is precisely the reminder that Peter needed. Peter, who was confusing Jesus with the other sons of man, needed to be reminded that he is separate. Now, there's an interesting image here, a bright cloud because we know that a cloud is dark. It's not bright. So there's an image here of brightness and of light. In Torah, we have God manifesting himself as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire at night as something that's always there that you can follow. And here we have a bright cloud, which reminds us of the fiery smoke that God is when he comes and he leads the people. Again, God is manifesting himself in the way that he did during the Exodus in order to declare that this is his son. So Jesus is the one who is declared by his father as his son. You have the only patrician, namely God the Father. He's the only father for those of us who take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. You have this one declaring Jesus as his son. He is putting Jesus on his knee. It's a very significant passage, and addressees of the gospel living in late antiquity in the Roman Empire would have understood immediately how dangerous this teaching is in terms of the threat it poses to the validity of the emperor. It's a very scandalous text. It's scandalous for Jews who would have heard the Gospel of Matthew. How can you put Jesus in the middle of Moses and Elijah? And it's scandalous for Romans. How can you say that Jesus is the Son of God? He's not Tiberius. How can you say that? How can you say that he is the one who is adopted? Who is this unseen God of Jesus who you're claiming is greater than Caesar? I mean, you can see how this unfolds in the story and ultimately in human history 
the impact that these stories from the New Testament had on civilization. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. What I find most striking is that they were terrified not by what they saw, Richard, but by what they heard. They saw the manifestation of Jesus as the Messiah flanked by the law and the prophets and the metaphor of Moses and Elijah. And they were talking about building a tourist site, a shrine. And now suddenly, when they hear the voice of the unseen God, they are terrified because now they understand that it's what they don't see. It's the victory they don't grasp that is much more frightening than Caesar's victory parade after winning a battle. This passage shows how impossible it is, how difficult it is to wrap your head around what the Son of God means, what it means to have Scripture as the reference point of what is holy, how to understand Jesus as the king of this kingdom, the one who represents this kingdom on earth when he's on the cross. How do we understand that God allows his son to be crucified? What does it mean to be the son of God? Once we declare Jesus to be the son of God, the rest of the book begins to raise all sorts of questions because once we say son of God, we can't help but think of Tiberius or one of his modern manifestations. We can't help it. When the disciples collapse upon hearing that this is the Son of God, this is, in a way, the correct response. But then Jesus' response is even more correct, which is, get up and let's get back to business. Let's go and we continue to teach. We have the duty to teach Scripture even if we are still students and if we are still learning Scripture and understanding Scripture, because sometimes Scripture is so powerful that it can teach when we ourselves haven't wrapped our brains around it. The scriptural text itself offers a teaching to those who hear it, not because of the one who speaks and their adeptness, but because of the word itself. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So the fireworks show is over. All you're left with is a Ben Adam with what to your human eyes, your fleshly eyes, your worldly eyes, looks like an ordinary man. And he is an ordinary man. That's the key. The thing that is terrifying has nothing to do with Marvel Comics. What's special, the differentiator, is the voice of the Father. Can you recognize that what makes Jesus special What coronates Jesus, what differentiates him from Caesar and everyone else, can you recognize that it is this teaching of God the Father, the voice from the heavens? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.